Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's a rather chilly Tuesday morning in San Francisco on uh, December the 6th, 2022. Earlier today, I did a show with the um, muckraking journalist, uh, New York City-based journalist, Chloe Sorvino. Raw deal about big, the big meat, the big food industry, particularly the big meat farming industry, and its brutality. It's a shocking story. Uh, hidden corruption, corporate greed, and the fight for the future of meat. It reflects badly on everyone, particularly on us humans in our addiction to meat and our mistreatment of um, the animals. As Chloe told me, she's been to a number of slaughterhouses and their shocking experiences. They speak, I think, of our bizarre, symbiotic, morally symbiotic relationship with the animals on the non-human species. On the one hand, we desperately need them, we eat them, we fetishize them, and of course, we mistreat them. Looking at the headlines today on the Guardian newspaper, you see this symbiosis on the one hand, a story about a heroic Pyrenees, Great Pyrenees dog who apparently single-handedly fought eight coyotes trying to prey on his owner's sheep. And on the other hand, a story about Elon Musk's new company, Neuralink, not Twitter. It's probably a more of a stain on humanity than Twitter, if that's possible, which uh, faces a federal inquiry after killing 1,500 animals in testing. This ambivalence is, of course, deeply troubling, and our relationship with other species is complex and fraught with all sorts of uh, all sorts of uh, moral shamefulness, which is dealt with in part in uh, the book we're talking about today by my guest Esther Wolfson. It's called "Between Light and Storm: How We Live." It might be also how we live and die with other species. Esther is joining us from a chilly Aberdeen in the northern part of Scotland. Esther, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Esther, I'm not sure. I don't suppose you've, you've read this book. Uh, no, I haven't. I was just thinking I would very much like to read it. Um, you're an expert on, um, on our relationship with other species. You've written many other books, including Corvus, A Life with Birds. How do we make sense of this? Is this the greatest stain you think on humanity more than anything else? We haven't exactly behaved oh. ourselves as a species, but in our treatment of other animals and particularly in factory farming in the early part of the 21st century. It's certainly one of them. Um, yeah, factory farming is an egregious crime against the animal world. And it's also very dangerous. Um, but when you come to, when one comes to talk about um, stains in humanity, I mean, it's been going on for so long. And um, that was one of the things that I was interested in writing about. Why is it? I, I, it's a very difficult thing to understand if you have any sensibility at all about the lives of other species. And that is what your book in part is about. It's a, a history of our relationship with other species. You begin as so many of these kinds of histories do, with our 
with the Bible. What does the Bible tell us about our relationship with other species? Well, that's it's um, that's a, quite a, a difficult one. Um, it depends which which. Well, Genesis. I know you 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 take your reader from Genesis to climate change. So let's begin with Genesis. I mean, there's a lot to cover. We're not going to be able to cover all of it in this yeah. conversation. Well, one of the things that I tried to do in the book is to trace where our ideas came from about um, other species, um, well, how Western ideas developed from the time of the Greeks onwards. And really, as far as the West's concerned, the, the significant aspect of our thinking really you can trace back to the Bible, uh, Genesis, well, the Old Testament, because think, the thinking of Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam are actually quite different when it comes to um, an approach to other species. Um, Judaism has, both Judaism and Islam are very similar in that they have got, or they did mention and have laws about how you treat other species, Christianity has none. And that is one of the one of the, the, the ways in which you can trace back the the history of lack of concern about animals, because when you don't have any law at all about it, then it's a, a free for all. And it's very it's interesting tracing the, the history through. Um, yeah, I, I've never really thought about that, uh, Esther. But not that I'm a, a Bible expert, but it's definitely true in the in the Christian tradition. Why why is there nothing on other species? Well, what's your your take? Is it simply a sort of an, an obsessively anthropocentric text and way of yeah. thinking? Yes, uh, and the thing is that I think. What it boils down to is the question of who has a soul and who has not. And if you do not have a soul, then it doesn't matter what happens to you, because without a soul, you have got no uh, no possibility of an afterlife. Also, the idea that that um, humans being um, made in the image of God, well, I, you know, if if we are, then nothing else is much to their detriment and that is where the idea of human exceptionalism comes from that you know that humans are exceptional because they are made in the image of god have souls and nothing else does and it's and interesting because in in the bible we're in the christian tradition we're told to be sympathetic to um those less fortunate than us the poor the infirm the old the young Yes. But not to other species. It, it, it doesn't go beyond humanity, if that's the right word. No, and I mean it's. Of course, it's you know you, you, the the question. There's a I think a bifurcation between ideas of soul and so on, and the fact that it's just expedient. You know, if you happen to like eating animals or hunting or whatever, it is very much easier to believe that these are not sentient creatures and they don't matter. And that very much, you know, runs through the whole history of, of our relationships with other species. Basically, in every religion, it's not just in Christianity. And, um, you know, the, the ideal is that you treat them properly. But when it comes to it, it's not necessarily the case. What about in the Old Testament, then? How did that tradition treat animals differently? How did it perhaps... 
Well, in, in junior having more respect in, or less of a concrete boundary between human beings and other species. In Judaism, there are laws about how you treat animals called and things like, you know, um, that you shouldn't take birds from, from nests, you shouldn't, the, the famous one about um, searing the calf in its mother's milk, and I mean, very basic things about not hacking bits off animals when they're still alive. But there were, there, you know, I think um, Moses Maimonides laid some of this down in the, the you know, what's called the Shulchan Aruch, the, the table of laws. Islam has got some very similar ideas about, um, about how he treats other species. We've done a number of shows on, we've done shows on everything, particularly on... Uh, other religions. We did a show recently with Richard McCarthy, an American uh, who spent some time in Japan. He wrote a book called Kuni, the Japanese vision and practice for urban rural reconnection, rethinking the relationship between towns and countryside, less interested in animals, but certainly the, the Buddhist tradition is quite different in terms of our relations with uh, uh, other species. Perhaps uh, Esther, you might say something about that. Explain why. why. Why are other religious traditions quite different in terms of thinking? Well, that, that's quite a difficult one. Um, Eastern, the Eastern view of life is just very different, not being uh, monotheistic in, in um, the way that, that uh, Christianity and Judaism are, are, makes a very big difference because you're not bound by the, you know, by these ideas of the soul and the image of God and so on. And um, Buddhism, certainly, the you know, I, the idea that that you know you you treat other creatures properly is a very basic kind of idea. So your book is, as I said, a history of this relationship between us and other species. You begin with Genesis. What other dates or moments in this history do you think are salient? What are the highlights or the lowlights? Mm, well, um, well, I mean, the, the Greeks had interesting things to say about vegetarianism and so on. Um, I suppose that, that one of the significant moments is Descartes, who formulated the idea of you know, the better machine, you know, the creatures were insentient and the Cartesian ideas were popular because as I say they're expedient if if you believe that you can do anything to other species um yeah and I mean Descartes was a, was a very enthusiastic vivisectionist himself and has written some you know appalling descriptions of his experiments on on other species and it's, I mean, it is very difficult to read these things. And he, you know, he talks about, about cutting creatures up and so on, obviously, before anaesthetic. Not to be able to do that without realising that they feel pain and are sentient. Difficult to imagine. Esther, do you think that that um, insensitive, if that's the right word, Cartesianism, this complete lack of respect or concern with the pain and suffering of other species. Is that built into the European Enlightenment? 
to some extent, yes. Why? I have. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, I presume it is simply the continuation of the belief that we are that there is such a separation between the human and the animal world that there are no laws, that there are no restraints. And what's an alternative tradition to Cartesianism? Descartes, of course, was not universally popular, a controversial man, mm -hmm. controversial mm -hmm. set of theories. Might we return to perhaps a more politically incorrect romanticism, love of nature, embrace of a different world, a, yeah. a, an anti-Cartesian world? Well, I mean, again, that, that's a difficult one because, it, you know, the romantic tradition is very much about the land and you know, the, the, you know, the morality pertaining to it, and much less about animals. These are, it's a very difficult one to, to, to figure because it's so ingrained, the idea that, you know, you can do anything, that it hardly comes in. Of course, you have um, some Christian thinkers who, oh, in fact, you know, obviously now you do, but, but um, you did have people who questioned, but not any great effect. What about, if not the theory, the practice um, of pre-industrial Western man, and, and maybe there's a, a gendered element here too, in terms of their respect and love of their animals, whether they're horses or dogs. When did this all begin? And perhaps in the domestication of, of, of other species? Very early. I mean, they're very early. Um, there's very early evidence of uh, people keeping pets, uh, you know, findings and graves of, of um, people buried with their dogs, say. Um, the Romans were extremely fond of, of, of their pets. I mean, you know, the, the, relation, the relation between humans and their pets, say, has always been quite a strong one. It's just when you come to other species, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's very much the same today that there are certain creatures that we, um, for whom we have love and respect and virtually nothing else. You know, dogs, dogs and cats, of course, mainly. Um, and people who purport to be animal lovers because they like dogs will have no hesitation in either treating other species badly or um, not being particularly concerned about them. Esther, uh, a couple of months ago, did a show with Justin Gregg. He, he has a new book. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, if Nietzsche was a narwhal, um, it's a book about what animal intelligence reveals about human stupidity. He's not a great fan of Nietzsche. Uh, I, I'm more an admirer of Nietzsche, although I can't claim to be an expert. Do you think Nietzsche was an interesting figure in terms of recognizing this histomic criminality of our species? Of course, he oh, famously hey. went mad in embracing a, a horse. Um, uh, was it, with, shall we say, post-Christian thinkers like Nietzsche in the late 19th, early 20th century that our relations with other species began to perhaps change or adapt in some way? 
Yeah, actually, I'm just looking. I have got a, a quote from Nietzsche up here. We do not regard the animals as moral beings, but do you suppose the animals regard us as moral beings? An animal which could speak said, would say, humanity is a prejudice of which we animals at least are free, which is an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, that is exactly the question of... of um, animal intelligence and how we look at animal intelligence and our own intelligence is is so fascinating because we have this very firm belief as i mentioned in human exceptionalism you know we are by virtue of our great brains vastly superior now the evidence doesn't really bear this out because we are the only species that has actually destroyed basically we've destroyed the branch upon which upon which we sit, we have destroyed, or we are in the process of destroying the planet on which we live, which no other species has done. Esther, we've done a number of shows on Charles Darwin, great 19th century British yeah. naturalist. Um, I, I'm thinking this through now and occurred to me before we talk, but I'm assuming that in many ways, Darwin is the light before the storm or the storm before the light. How does Darwin and Darwinism change everything? Well, clearly by making the connection between um, evolution and humans and taking away the case for, for exceptionalism because we are you know, part, part of the universe rather than being an exception in it. That's... And of course, you know the religious um, aspect of it, the you know the horror of uh, Christianity discovering or being told that that uh, of Darwin's theories. That that was why, because suddenly we were something. We were part of uh, a wider world. So we're really all living in Charles. Darwin's world. He was an interesting figure, of course. Uh, oh, yeah. He only went on one great trip and discovered many species, also was a, a farmer, a lover of the land. Does his yeah. life tell us anything about our relations, our flawed relations with other species? Oh, very much so. He, he wrote a lovely little monograph um, about worms and in which he says worms have memory, they're intelligent, you know, things that, that you know, most humans find you know, well, strange and unbelievable. And, you know, he was very interested in, the, you know, all the, the smaller aspects of of, um, of the animal kingdom as well. And, oh, yeah, a huge amount to tell us about, about it. We, we did a show uh, with a woman called Karen Backer. Um, she's a scientist at... Yes, uh, she has a new book out, The Sounds of Life, How Digital Technology is Bringing Us Closer to the Worlds of Animals and Plants. She suggests that with digital technology, we're learning to be able not just to talk to the animals, but the plants. If we can, and maybe this comes back to, to Nietzsche, what do you think they'd say? Would we be able, if, if we could share a language, would we be able to talk to other species? What would we say and what would they say? Well, what would we say? Well, what should we say might be more, more cogent. Uh, we should say, 
I'm terribly sorry we've we've done this. And what they might say, I can't imagine. I think it would depend very much on the species. All the chickens in the, in the factories, the billions of chickens, yeah, exactly. chicken wings that we voraciously. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, the, the creatures that I know most about are, are the crow family, and um, they're. Um, they certainly have opinions. I think that they would have quite a lot to say about our treatment of them. You wrote an interesting piece in The Guardian, Love You to Death, How We Hurt the Animals We yeah. Cherish on Dogs. Do you think for us to change, we need to also rethink our relationship with our pets? I don't know what the case is in Aberdeen in Northern Scotland, but certainly on the West Coast of the United States, people now carry their dogs around with them in their backpacks. They bring them to dinner. They feed them at the table. Um, we have a fetish, particularly with the internet, with cats. Um, do you think one way to move forward to a more, to a better relationship with other species is, is, is to stop anthropomorphizing other creatures and recognizing that they're simply different? Very much so. Uh, it's a big problem here um, during the pandemic. People bought dogs and cats, but particularly dogs for companionship. And of course, unscrupulous breeders were breeding creatures without regard to uh, their future health and charging fortune for them. And there's some you know, appalling cases of cruelty. And now that we are in a really serious economic situation, people are abandoning dogs, taking them to shelters, in fact, they're thousands. And it is this, this, this feeling that you know, they're dispensable, that you, know, you can breed them, buy them, discard them. It's, it's a, 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 a very difficult moral question. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm certain people, you know, they, they love their dogs, but when it comes to it, have they thought about, well, about the breeding? Uh, one of the, the things that I talk about in the book is people's fondness, uh, the fashion for flat-nosed dogs, the brassicophallic dogs, who have hideous health problems. But people want these dogs and people, and so they're bred and, you know, they can't breathe. They have a huge number of, of um, physical problems. They shouldn't be bred, and they, I mean, a, you know, a vast number of vets say this, they should not be bred and they should not be bought, but people want them because they're cute. This, the word cute has possibly done more to damage the animal kingdom than anything else. Um, the idea that this is the, this is the standard which we, we aim for, to have something that's cute. Yeah, I agree. I think we should, um, Ban the word cute. Tell me a little bit about your life, uh, Esther. Um, you, you've dedicated it to, to, to writing and studying other species. You read, as I said, Corvus, A Life with Birds, uh, in Field Notes from a Hidden City. Uh, you write about gulls and rats and slugs and snails. Uh, were you a young girl when you discovered that we weren't actually the center of the universe? When did you suddenly... No, I didn't think I've ever thought that we were the center of the universe, but I mean, I hadn't actually thought... I mean, we had dogs when I was a child. And I hadn't really thought that much about any of it until with my own children, we... Um, or somebody gave us some doves and then, you know, kind of escalated from there and they wanted rats. And 
And we, I suppose, for some reason, we devoted a lot of time to them. We spent a lot of time. We were given a, a fledgling rook who um, was with me for, for 30 years. Just She died actually just three years ago, just before the pandemic. And it was it was really through that, through this kind of close contact with creatures that uh, yeah, I began to think, hang on, the, you know, there's, there's something to these beasts. There's something, they are not the kind of um, insentient creatures that, that one would imagine. There has, I mean, in the, in the last few years, there's been a lot of research done into bird, birds and, and even neuroanatomy and so on, which has proved that they are considerable, well, I use the word thinkers, but they are, they have big brain capacities. But you still hear people talking about bird brains. You still hear people, the, these ideas are very difficult to change. And I suppose that's what I've been trying to do in the books, alter, alter the, the um, perception of creatures. Yeah, it's important work you're doing, and many others, of course. I'm sure you're familiar no. with the work of Simon Montgomery. Oh, yes, Wonderful writer and wonderful person. Oh, she wrote a wonderful book about, about the octopus. Right, and hawks and octopus. Yeah. I just actually came back from Costa Rica, spent some time not oh, shooting wow. birds, but photographing them. I wonder if there's something about birds that resonate with us because they're, they really are, the, they, they come out of dinosaurs. I mean, they existed before us as, as a species. Yeah. Do you think that they somehow trigger something odd in humans um, because they that they came before us and they no doubt will exist after we've gone? Oh yeah, well, yeah. It, again, this is an interesting one. In this country, there's a fixation about the idea of what called songbirds. Now, I mean, the people who use the term songbirds, I mean, they mean blackbirds, robins, you know, the small passerines. In fact, the term songbirds means something entirely different. It's, you know, a classification uh, um, of a particular kind of bird. And a certain strand of the media here will go on and on about, oh, how our songbirds are being killed off by magpies, say. Magpies are songbirds themselves, but this is beside the point. And the, you know, it's again, it's the cute. We pref we like the cute. We don't people don't like corvids, crows, jackdaws, magpies, because they're not deemed to be cute. Right, and that's what Montgomery says about hawks: is they teach us a different way to love, a much yeah. more aggressive way, which certainly is anything but cute. That's right. I mean, you know, you cannot love the natural. You cannot appreciate the natural world. And have the word cute in it, you just can't, because the natural world is not, and neither should it be cute. Esther, what do you think? There's a, a new fashion of, of books about what we can learn from humans. It's part of, I think, our, our post Darwin culture. Uh, Ed Yong has an important oh, yes. new book out called An Immense World. He was on the show. He talked about how we can develop empathy through learning about other creatures. Yeah. Carl Safina, another influential now oh, yes. about humility. Do you share their sort of their their ideas that we can learn quote unquote the values of animals, humility or 
or, or sympathy or oh, empathy? Completely. completely. And what has stopped us from being able, from doing so is the belief that we're the only ones who, who feel. But if you, I mean, if you observe other species and see, I mean, it, it, it's an obvious thing that, that in order to live to survive, the, for them to have you know, mutual empathy and all the rest of it is, you know, is, is going to be a, a good maneuver. But it's, been, it's taken far, far too long for us to, to realize that. I mean, we, you know, it, in fact, it, it's rather tragic. We are realizing this when we're on the brink of destroying so many species. I mean, I, I have, you know, you just have to, to live with a, a creature for a time uh, to recognize its emotional capacities. And without anthropomorphizing, you know, just simple observation can tell you this. I wonder if there's something else to it, too. We did a show with the English journalist Jenny Kleeman. She has a new book out, Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, about our digital future in which uh, we're inventing smart machines that perhaps will compete and perhaps even enslave us. Is there something about the world that we're talking about today where we recognize where the equals, the, 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 the co-residents on the planet of other species and our technological prowess in inventing post-human forces I, I i'm wary about calling them species but robots that replicate everything that we do well I, you know again it's uh there there is a certain irony that, that this should be a consideration when there are plenty of well, vast number of species about whom we know nothing at all we still don't know and we still don't know of their existence we are causing them to become extinct as we are, before we, we, we know anything about, about them. Um, and in a way, it's just a token, further token of human arrogance that, that, that we should see a technological future before we have taken the trouble to, um, to understand what kind of world we actually live in. Do you think, um, Esther, that we're on the brink of a, a new way of thinking one of the cliches is we beyond left and right but beyond capitalism and socialism perhaps the great issue of the 21st century is this issue of our relations with other species george Monbiot was on the show recently i'm sure you're familiar with his work he has a, a new book out regenesis yeah. feeding the world without devouring the planet but i wonder if regeneration is a is a, an, an even deeper philosophical movement that might enable us to confront these demons that you've wrote, written about in your book and, and so many other authors from Ed Young and Carl Safina to Justin Gregg, Simon Montgomery, also another woman who we had on the show, Jack, Jackie Higgins also writes about this. Um, are we on the brink of a, of, of a new I'm wary about calling it a renaissance because, of course, with the Enlightenment, you go back to Cartesianism and the cruelty of that age. But could we on, be on the brink of something rather interesting, rather positive, rather than negative? Light yeah. rather than storm? I would like to think so. But when you talk about 
about you know beyond right and left and capitalism that is a, that i find a very difficult one to imagine because i don't know what would have to happen you know beyond a terms of revolution and so on for anything very much to change i mean things change so slowly even though climate change and so on overtaking us i don't i really don't know at what stage we'd have or what stage we'd have to reach before anything would change in a positive direction i mean i'm you know you know of course i know george monbiot's work and um but uh, perhaps i'm more of a cynic but um i find it i find it very difficult i mean the power and money in fact i was interested to, uh, to see that that you picked up um the uh the thing about Neuralink and um, yeah, yeah, the you know animal cruelty, which was I mean, shocking. Yeah, totally. well, Musk, uh, Elon Musk is a direct descendant, I think, of um, of Descartes and that yeah sort of well uh, Cartes, that sort of hard Cartesianism, and of course he's exporting right. it to other planets. I mean, that's another element here. What happens if we find other species on other planets as well? well God knows what will happen there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it just seems so retrograde. I mean, to, to, to do that without thought now just seems so careless, so almost vindictive when the move is, sh should be towards consideration for other species. I suppose one can expect no better of some people. Yeah, I, I don't suppose Elon Musk will read your book. I think everybody else needs to, Between Light and Storm, How We Live with Other Species. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, Esther, you're in Aberdeen. And as I suggested to you before we went live, I once went through Aberdeen on my way to the Orkneys, another beautiful part of the world. Um, we talked about Darwin, discovering Darwinism essentially in Patagonia and his travels around the world. Do we all need to leave the city? Do we go need to go to? I mean, if we all go to Patagonia, yeah. of course, that's a catastrophe too. Or the Orkneys, or at least out into the fields. Is that Absolutely some way of, of dealing with it? Absolutely not. This is something that the, another really interesting one. You know, what is wilderness? What is? I I'm I'm a real kind of city person, and you can live. You can find wildness in a city. Urban species are every bit as fascinating and wonderful as, as ones you find in Patagonia. Look, and also, I mean, we have to stop traveling the way we do, even, you know, driving around and so on. So, I, you know, I, I sort of maintain a, a kind of Taoist perspective on this. Stay, you know, in your area and keep it small. 